Melchizedek is really important. Who? <laughs> I'm kind of with you in that. But for Old Testament believers, Melchizedek was a major figure. Really important. And today, we get to read every single time he's in the Old Testament. Every time. Every single verse. He's an important guy. And we'll read the first one right after we get the setting. So back then, there were no superpowers. Most people lived in little walled cities, each of which had their own king. Glorified mayor, really. But many of these kings were despotic, absolute rulers. And like bullies often do, they would gang up on some other town and their king, and they'd steal all the gold and the people and the cattle and haul everything off to their own city. Now, Abraham's ne'er-do-well nephew, Lot, lived in a town that was sacked by a gang of four kings. Actually, Abraham was still called Abram then, and what are you going to do? <laughs> he had to go and rescue Lot and his family. Now, as it happened, Abram had grown fantastically wealthy by then, had hundreds of servants, so he and a group of others took off to get Lot and the whole city's wealth back from those bully kings. Well, they, of course, didn't want to give up their new ill-gotten gains. <laughs> so a big fight ensues. The bad guys are all killed. And every person, thing, and beast is recovered with some extra. So they meet at the prearranged rendezvous point, And someone extra is there. You'll guess who. And remember... We're going to read every single verse about this remarkable man. First reference. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. and He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The second reference to the big M is in Psalm 110, which has already been cited three times by our, our, our writer. And it might interest you to know that although it is only seven verses long, it is also quoted or alluded to in Matthew, Luke, Mark, John, Acts, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, and the Revelation. <laughs> That's a lot for seven little verses. <laughs> Why is it so important? Well, that's just an excellent question. You guys are so with it today. Because it is a messianic psalm. It looks forward to Jesus. And here's the verse that we're interested in today. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah, who was still to come when that psalm was written, would be a priest in the same way that Melchizedek was a priest. Fascinating. And that's it. <laughs> this is the only two times that Melchizedek, in spite of his fantastic importance to Jews, even of Jesus' time, is mentioned. That's it. Well, there's got to be more to this than that. And there is. And we'll get to it shortly. Melchizedek was fantastically important throughout the history of Jews. It's a, there's a number of Midrashic writings about him. It's amazing. 
The writer to the Hebrews, after using one-third of his letter to talk about the superiority of the person of Christ and stating in his central passage that acceptance of the superior way of Christ is necessary for salvation, will now make his argument with the Jews of his time that Jesus' work creates a new covenant, superior and eternal. And it all hinges on the historical importance of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Salem is derived from the word shalom, that state of peacefulness so coveted by the Jews. The city of peace, Jerusalem, was originally just called Salem. And this priest king's name, the writer lets everyone know, means king of righteousness. It's easy to see where he's going, isn't it? (laughs) But this thing about Melchizedek resembling the Son of God because we don't know his parents, that's another one of those strange Jewish ideas. So some fun facts. Cain killed his brother Abel. That's that's not the fun fact. See, God gave another son to Adam and Eve, Seth. Well, he gave lots more kids to them, but Seth in particular was to replace Abel. After the Bible records the story of this first murder, the writer of that book, in words inspired by the Holy Spirit, launches into an extended discourse on Cain's life and a genealogy of his descendants. And that seems very strange to us as it's made abundantly clear that those people do not follow God in any way, shape, or form. But then, right after that, Seth and his line, his genealogy, are expounded upon. Always in pairs. Those who are not God's people, followed by those who are. Ishmael, good man though he was, was not. His half-brother Isaac was. Esau was not. His twin brother Jacob, later named Israel, was. That's how they always considered people. Those who don't follow God, those who do follow God. And always with genealogies. It's a Jewish thing. So it would have been painfully clear to every Jew there is no such information on Melchizedek. That has always stood out to the Jews. And so our writer explains why Melchizedek's genealogy is missing, and more. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, 
for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. It was said of him, he lives. That is to say, his death was never recorded. Another great anomaly in Jewish writing. The point of all this is that Melchizedek is more important than Levi or Abraham. Still, for more than 1,400 years, the Levitical priesthood was the big deal. And now he says, a new priesthood is necessary. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? That's a good question. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses says nothing about priests. What's he saying here? When Aaron, an offspring of Levi, was installed as a priest, they were given the law. The law, knew at that time, made him a priest. It's a big change. Now with Jesus, a priest like Melchizedek, a greater change in the law must happen. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Well, how come it's more obvious with Jesus? What's the big difference? He has an indestructible life. Sure, he let them kill him, but he couldn't stay dead. His nature is such that he must live. His life is indestructible. And understand, he's not just immortal like we will be. He is eternal. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A law under which they've lived for some 1,500 years is weak and useless. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> you got to feel for those poor Jews who believed the law was everything. He says, it never did any good. never made anyone perfect. And now it will be replaced by something that works. A new kind of priest is installed who can do what they couldn't. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant a better covenant than the law that they lived under. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He will always live and always save to the uttermost forever because he always lives to make intercession for us. 
always, eternally. Okay, for them, the writers writing to those people. But we who follow them are, I think, clearly included. That's that's like, wow, <laughs> wow, and and wow again. Let's. Uh, are you excited yet? For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. It was indeed fitting. Fitting that we should have a holy, innocent, unstained priest. One separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Do you think maybe our writer's a little excited? (laughs) Yes. Follow this perfect high priest. Leave the old behind. Leave the unholy, guilt-ridden, stained life crowded with sin and sinners behind. It's more than important that they do. Some years ago, a young friend of mine, Jed, and his friend Isaac wanted to go on a week-long hike. Guys week. Oh, they'd never done it, so, and that's my kind of thing, so they called me and I said, you bet. <laughs> it was July, but it was also the Olympic rainforest, emphasis on rain. Our first night there was an amazing downpour, uh, like nothing I've ever seen before. And I've been caught in thunderstorms in the Midwest, and I've hiked the Olympics dozens of times, never experienced that much aerial bombardment of water in the morning the weather was much better and our tarps doing their job uh, we were able to get a fire going and started to cook our breakfast a couple comes down the path we're talking six in the morning here what's even more odd no backpacks no coats soaking wet in the middle of the willows <laughs> we got them close to the fire, and they put, and we put some warm drinks in their hands. And the weather the weather had started the afternoon before, and she decided she didn't want to spend the night in the mountains in the rain. So she didn't care if it took all night. She wanted to walk out. Now it's important to know that the rivers rise every afternoon in the Olympics as the snow melt rushes down the mountains. And think, when it's downpouring, where's all that water going to go? Well, she was a little thing maybe 5'2", and 100 pounds soaking wet, which she was. And there was no bridge out of the Enchanted Valley where they were staying back then. And now the water, which had been two feet deep that morning, was up to her chest. Uh, In spite of his holding her hand, she lost her footing and was swept downstream. Fortunately, her husband was wise enough to realize he could never help her while he was in the stream himself burdened with a heavy load no less so he dumped everything and he rushed to the shore he ran downstream grabbed a long branch and held it out to her unfortunately it worked he was able to pull her to shore and bruised and battered though she was they were able to walk through the night and now in just a couple hours uh, would be back to their car well about an hour after they left our camp a dozen rescue personnel came up the trail never seen that in the Olympics before or since we got a report of a woman swept downstream we're trying to see if she's still alive (laughs) at first I thought it might be 
our couple, but sadly knew. Uh, the man who was with the woman that they did carry out in a body bag tried to stay in the river and save her. He also was swept away and almost died himself. Uh, he had no idea what happened to his mate. Uh, completely lost track of her as he was being slammed against rocks and logs. He didn't even know how he got out himself. You see, a person caught up in the flood with you can't save you. <laughs> we need someone on solid ground. Someone who had already escaped. We need someone who died and rose again. We need a high priest that death cannot hold. One who is life and continues forever. We need a high priest like Melchizedek. One who continues forever. And our writer says, we have one. He gets to the essence of his message. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, that man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. A better hope from better promises. See, the law of the Old Testament was not the original. <laughs> It was but a poor copy because, well, they weren't able to accept one to live by one that was any better as <laughs> the most they could do. And if that's true, then the old covenant must pass away. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, No, the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Obsolete and growing old ready to vanish away we don't know when exactly this letter was written but most believe somewhere between 65 and 68 AD we do know that the Roman armies marched on Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 AD every single stone as Jesus foretold was moved from its place temple worship the old way vanished at that moment and has never been reinstated. 
It vanished away. Well, it never was the original. And the real, once for all time, had come. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand, and the table, and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, let's talk about this tent. It's a picture. It's 450 feet long. Each of those pillars on the side that hold up the curtains, the fence around it, are 15 feet tall. Okay, it's a big thing. Nobody, nobody on pain of death goes through that gate except specially sanctified priests. At the back, it's kind of opened up for us to see in this drawing, is the holy place and separated by a 30-foot tall curtain, the Holy of Holies. And it was possible for a specially chosen priest to go into the holy place every day to service the lamps, etc. But the Holy of Holies, once a year, that one priest, a high priest, was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. He wore special bells on his clothing so the others could hear if he was moving, right? And he has a rope tied to his ankle. Why? <laughs> because if he did anything wrong, he would be struck dead by God and they'd have to pull his body back out. I mean, they sure weren't going to go in after him. <laughs> That's an imposing place, a sacred place. And this was only a copy. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second. Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You do it right. You don't want to die. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The old law, remember, can't make anything perfect. He wants his readers to understand the new covenant is superior because of its ultimate sacrifice. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The important place of Christ's sacrifice was not the hill outside of Jerusalem. It was the real holy place in heaven. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
he offered himself to purify us from our dead works so we can serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Even those who believed under the first covenant have their forgiveness in Christ. For when a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Even the copy needed blood. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. Even the ancient Jews knew blood was necessary for forgiveness. Everyone knew a sacrifice was mandatory. Unfortunately, most of them got it wrong sometimes, even sacrificing humans. But they knew there was some connection between blood and eternal life. A temple was set up to allow this. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not its own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Isn't it beautiful how he brings his argument back around to where he started? <laughs> and just as it is appointed for man once to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Live, die, judgment. All Jews knew that. That was the way it happened. That's how it works. So, he says, just like you know that's true, understand that Jesus lived and died for many, and something comes after that. He will return. Not to judge or to provide forgiveness again, but for those who are eagerly waiting for for him. The Holy of Holies, the real one in heaven. That's going to be exciting. There is only one sacrifice that ultimately matters. And it is the end of, it settles everything. And unlike the shadow that came before it, this sacrifice initiates the end of the ages. For since the law has but a, was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The old way just reminded them again and again how much sin was in their lives. And actually, we can be like that. Forgetting that we have forgiveness in Christ, going back again and again to what we were. Like dogs returning to their own vomit, it says in one place. It's horrible. There's no reason to live that way. Just like there was no reason to follow the old ways for them. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus himself said those words before he came to the earth. The Father doesn't want sacrifices and offerings. He prepared a body for the Son. And what was that body for? What was the Father's will for it? For the Son to do what was written in the book. For him to die for us. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctified. That's justified. Regenerated. The old law was right, but now there's a better hope. (laughs) And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The old way covered their sins. The new way takes them away. They stood at their service because they were still working. (laughs) Jesus sits because he's finished with his work. A single sacrifice. And who are the enemies he conquered? The writer has already told us Satan and his hordes are defeated. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why would you need an offering in the temple when you already have forgiveness of sins? Why would you want to cover your sins when you could have them forgiven? The truth is, the old system does nothing anymore. But this was a long time ago. What about us? What does this mean for us? But once Jesus came into your heart, did everything change? After 19 years in our federal White House, we moved. We cleared out enormous amounts of junk. The goodwill made out like a bandit. (laughs) But so did the junkyard. Well, how about our spiritual life? Have you hauled off the garbage? (laughs) 
Let me ask it this way. If someone looked closely at your life, would they say, oh, wow, you are different? Or carefully looking at you, would they say, what's the big deal about Christianity? (laughs) I've had people say to me, maybe you have to, I don't want to become a Christian because then I'd have to give up. I love to say, really, why do you think you have to give that up? And you guess what they... They usually say, really? You mean I don't have to stop doing that? Well, you don't have to, although you probably will. But that's not what I said. Why do you think you'd have to give that up? They already know that what they're doing, they shouldn't be doing. (laughs) They don't want to leave the old line. Even though the new is so much better. Can you truly say to them, it's worth it. <laughs> Leave it all behind. You'll never regret it. Jesus really did die for your sins. His death transcended two dimensions, this and heaven. The spiritual dimension where the eternal God resides. We're forgiven not just here, but much more importantly, in heaven by God. Satan is defeated. We don't need to live in fear any longer. We can fall into the arms of Christ. Forgiven forever to live in perfection. Did did you hear that? (laughs) I don't know if you've got a mirror, but that little part gets me. In perfection forever. I mean, what part of this is there that you don't want? (laughs) I don't understand. Anyway, thank you, Father, so much. It is a glorious, wonderful, amazing truth. And I know those poor Jews back then, they thought they were worshiping you perfectly. And they didn't, many of them, understand that everything had to change, even though it's clearly written all throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus came. And yeah, they killed him. But many of those, as Peter in that very first day of the church on Pentecost, he said, you killed him. But it's okay. It's okay. Because he died for that sin. He died for every sin. It doesn't matter anymore. Turn around. It's okay. Leave all that old stuff behind. And they did in droves. But some didn't. It's hard for our hearts to think of them not understanding Jesus Christ when they probably saw him themselves. For those of us who have not seen him, we know. We know who he is. We know where he is in some sense. We know he's with you. We know that one day he will return. Just as sure as life and death and judgment, he's coming again. And we will get to be with him. And then you will make with Jesus Christ a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's a part of the being of that new creation. And we get to be a part of that. Wow. Or there's some people, each one of us has somebody in our minds that we can think of. Lord, we want them with us. If they're not ready right now. So maybe, Lord, you can help us find a way 
to express this care that you have for us and this desire to take us out of our own filthiness and bring us into a new creation. Help us, Lord, somehow to show them that leaving the past behind is a good thing. Leave it all. It's not worth it. Drop everything. Run for the shore. <laughs> That's what we're trying to say. Except, well, we're actually the people that need the stick held on to us. And we will drown. But fortunately, your son did that. And he's on solid ground where he can bring us. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us, maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least, with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.